0: to the Games Biz podcast. I'm James Batchelor and I'm joined this morning by... Matt Handrahan. And Hayden Taylor. I say this morning because it is Monday 13th of July. We're recording a quick addendum uh, to the podcast that was recorded on Friday when we usually record uh, to reflect the news that happened at Ubisoft over the weekend. Um, the headlines are, Three more Ubisoft executives step down amid accusations of abuse and a toxic culture at the company. I apologise now for any mispronunciations of name, but the three that stepped down over the weekend were chief creative officer Serge Huskoet, Ubisoft Canadian Studios head Yanis Mallet, global head of HR Cecile Cornet. Uh, this follows news uh, we've not touched on the podcast, but this follows news that vice president of editorial Maxime Billand resigned. The vice president for editorial creative services, Tommy Francois, has been placed on administrative leave. Uh, last month Assassin's Creed Valhalla's creative director Ashraf Ismail left the project and an unnamed Ubisoft Toronto employee has been terminated Um, brief brief quote uh, statement snippet of the statement from Eve Guillemot because we'll be talking about him later Uh, CEO and co-founder Eve Guillemot said Ubisoft has fallen short in its obligation to guarantee a safe and inclusive workplace environment for its employees this is unacceptable as toxic behaviours are in direct contrast to values on which I have never compromised and never will Uh, the company has already said they're to restructure their editorial teams they have appointed Lidwine Sauer as head of workplace culture and they are currently hiring a head of diversity and inclusion let's start with the execs that have stepped down uh, that's six now seven people over the course of the uh, last couple of weeks that have, have either been put on leave or resigned or stepped down or in some way distance been distanced from the company and um, seven names at a massive company like Ubisoft and seven senior names at the risk of massively understating this that's not a good look for the company (laughs) no it's not
1: it should also be mentioned that they're not that's not like everybody either there are you know i I don't want to kind of get too explicit about other allegations in Twitter because you know we have to do treat treat them as allegations for the most part but there are other people certainly within the hr team that are also being accused accused of various things and I've seen calls for, like, the entire HR team to be kind of ripped up and started again. So whether – I mean, this may be the end of of the kind of high-profile departures. It might just be a sort of a rebuilding from here. People might leave more quietly, potentially not under this kind of pressure, but – But even so, you know, sort of six or seven of the highest ranking employees in a company all going at the same time suggests that, well, it seems likely to me that it doesn't end with six or seven people, basically, because they're at the top of the organization.
2: Well, wasn't the uh, almost half of the Ubisoft HR department threatening to resign unless uh, Yves Gilmont? Um, publicly exonerated HR for its Mm -hmm. involvement with what happened so I mean now that the head of HR is gone do you suspect that we'll be seeing mass resignations from the HR department or do you think that's more just um sort of basically trying to threaten the company to um back down
1: well i mean it's a difficult one to uh to to understand without kind of more inside knowledge than i have uh jason schreier has been sort of teasing an article he's currently writing where he claims to have talked to dozens of ubisoft employees um about the culture of the company And, and i would be interested to hear what's been going what what's been going on through a source like that that threat by HR, I mean, is that the fact that they feel hard done by? Is that a, a way of sort of exonerating themselves? So I think that that particular piece of information came through one of these exposure articles, of which there have been quite a few of Ubisoft already. So it doesn't necessarily suggest that HR has been doing its job and has been thrown under the bus. It could equally suggest that HR sort of hasn't been doing its job, but is holding, you know, holding the company to ransom, basically to exonerate itself. What we do know is that the global head of HR is gone. So that's either in protest or it's because they genuinely were facilitating or, you know, looking the other way on this stuff. And as I said, seeing other people within that HR team be accused on Twitter of, you know, not not acting on information and allowing this stuff to go on. So... That that's a particularly um, murky aspect of this. I think. Well, I think um,
2: HR policies can also be woefully underdeveloped when it comes to things like this. So, without wanting to, you know, exonerate the HR department, there is also the question raised about whether or not Ubisoft HR had the policies, was equipped with the policies to actually take appropriate action to begin with. It's not uncommon for HR departments to have very very vague easily to easy vague policies that kind of easy to sidestep around because of their lack of definition um so it wouldn't surprise me if that was a case at ubisoft that's not to exonerate the people working in hr if they were complicit in any way but it does raise the question of what their actual policies and approach were to begin with
1: I mean, I, I think the question is. Well, there, there's multiple questions to lead from this. The question is like, who's taking over from these people? I mean, these people are gone, um, but their essential functions within the company. Uh, something else I've seen discussed is the possibility of. Um, uh, uh, a guy called Pat Plaud, uh stepping up to take over from Serge Haskell but Pat Claude himself has been accused of, of certain things um, and, and it just makes it just raises the question of like how deep into Ubisoft does this stuff go uh, and it also I think raises some questions well, well it remains to be seen whether Pat Claude will take over but for example like a company that's had pe- problematic figures like this in positions of power for so long it, at what point is it capable of appointing people to take their places because it's already proved it isn't necessarily capable of assessing a, a good leader basically so I know Ubisoft's committed to this idea of like reforming the company and then reviewing all of its processes but at the same exact time like what what will that take how long will it take and can it can it serve without a chief creative officer and a global head of HR until that happens? Particularly under you know circumstances where you've got a threatened walkout of the entire HR department, it it seems like Ubisoft is in a very very difficult uh, position to navigate, and and it could be could could have massive impacts on how the company is able to run properly and effectively. The interests of its staff, at, you know, as, as 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 the most important factor for for quite some time.
0: How long does it take, as well? You know, how long does it take to you know bring in the right people to kind of sort these issues and, and address the, the the toxicity of the culture? That's the biggest concern. Like, you know, they say they're restructuring the editorial teams. They only did that back in January, and it didn't you know clearly didn't erase any kind of problems. Not necessarily that was that was the objective of that restructure. That, you know these are as we've said before in in any kind of discussion about this these are systemic issues and this sounds like with, with so many people in positions of power this sounds like it's almost deeply ingrained not within ubisoft as a company but like within certain people at the company like they are just too too embedded in the company for it to for it to be a quick fix. There are no quick fixes for this, but there is so, so much scrutiny on Ubisoft right now that even if they, you know, they've they got a new head of a workplace culture, they're hiring a head of diversity and inclusion, even if those two positions were filled and active and ready to go today, there's no telling how long it will take to, to address all this and in the meantime, how many other accusations may well emerge.
1: Yeah, I think it's what Hayden was saying earlier, though, right? Like you can hire a chief diversity officer, but if your systems for reporting and holding people accountable for their actions are broken, as they do seem to be here, right, that we can say it's these seven bad actors or whatever. But the fact of the matter is it's seven bad actors in a system that was unable to hold them accountable for their bad acting so like what what good does having a chief diversity officer do when the actual culture and the whole structure of your company does not allow things like this to to ever lead to any consequences for anybody that's the more that's like the larger issue and i also think it's Hmm. that's where just saying oh these six people are gone therefore we can start you know we can start we can we can move forward now like that that seems a bit too easy and a bit too simplistic. That, that Ubisoft does have a bigger problem than the six or seven people. It has uh, a company in which six or seven people were able to act with impunity for years and years and years and years. And why the hell is that?
0: Especially given the size of Ubisoft, so like you know, the, the company has studios all over the world. Like you know, things like Assassin's Creed and Watch Dogs have ten to fifteen studios on them per time, and those studios have hundreds of people. I'll admit I'm going off Google for this, but like Ubisoft's um, employee count as of 2019 apparently was 15,985. Now, I'm fairly confident that it's not just six or seven prob- people that are the problem there. So that for any company is, it's a tall order to, to not only kind of, yeah, root out the issues, but as you say, kind of implement new processes, new policies, new structure that prevent those issues from arising.
2: I think one of the biggest problems is like when it comes to workplace harassment and abuse and things like that, it, it it's most typically comes in the form of emotional abuse, which unless you know what emotional abuse looks like, especially um, covert emotional abuse, which is the, the, the the brand of emotional abuse favored by the sort of the feminist ally types who pretend to be, you know, very like woke as it were in public spaces and pretend to be, you know, at the vanguard for social justice. And they use that as like a smoke screen to get away with their very objectionable behavior. And that often comes in the form of like covert emotional abuse. And if you don't know what that looks like, it's very, very, very easy, frighteningly easy. I would say to dismiss it as just something like that's not a big deal. Cause you, if you see it in isolation, you are just like, oh, okay, that's, you know, you, the problem is you always want to give people you work with the benefit of the doubt. You're like, well, they seem like such a nice person. And yeah, okay. That was a slightly questionable thing. They just did there, but you know, they're under a lot of stress and you end up making excuses for them. Um, they don't have to make the excuses for themselves a lot of the time because you know, 90% of the time when you see them, they're being just a cool guy. um, But you end up, yeah, you end up making the excuses for them because you don't know what emotional abuse looks like. So in a company of 15,000 people, I wouldn't imagine that any, I, I wouldn't imagine a sizable chunk of that, of the people there know what emotional abuse looks like and therefore wouldn't be aware of how they might be complicit in it again that's not necessarily blaming a lot of these people because they don't know the signs that they're looking out for but you also see it sometimes with like the victims of emotional abuse who often don't realize exactly what's happening to them because they end up feeling very like confused and gaslit and um like they're the only one who's sort of experiencing this thing and perhaps they're just crazy um, and it's only once they've actually sort of taken a step back and seen what's happened to them, do they realize that all of like the emotional pain they've been feeling for however many months leading up to that point is coming from this one con- persistent source and it's always the, the abuser. So it's like in, in terms of how a company like Ubisoft tackles this issue, it's like it needs to basically do a company-wide training course like very thorough training course on like what are the signs of emotional abuse, how to spot it and how to deal with it. And anything less than that will allow systemic abuse to continue perpetrating through the system endlessly because there will always be abusers who can hide behind their SJW credentials for lack of a better term. Um, And they will always just be able to move silently through the industry, quietly abusing people unseen and when, whenever somebody steps forward and says this person is like a problematic abuser, everyone looks at him and goes, well, I don't think that's right. They're, they're so woke on Twitter. They must be great. They've always been nice to me. And they dismiss away the one or two isolated incidents they've seen of this person exhibiting questionable behavior because we always want to give our friends and colleagues the benefit of the doubt. And unless you know what emotional abuse looks like, it is so difficult to identify it in that context
1: yeah i think ubisoft has what ubisoft has got um is an issue it has accusations of that nature but it also has much more explicit stuff where it's like you know some of some of the details of of what 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 people are accused of doing is like hair raising stuff like i wouldn't Mm -hmm. want to repeat it now because it's it's not covert in any way Mm -hmm. um and then what we're not able to do is, is, is understand exactly <clears throat> what had been tried to be done about it, whether what sort of action was ever taken, the kind of conversations that happen at the highest level of the company. And I think this kind of goes to, you know, um, E. Guillemot, the current CEO. So, so definitely, um, certainly Serge Hascoet is accused of some yeah, genuinely terrible things. Uh, in, in front of people, um, the speaking about people that work directly under him in the most demeaning and um, demoralising and dehumanising of ways. There is a question that has been raised. I've seen it. I mean, you know, Twister is always the place where you see most of this stuff because it is the platform in which the games industry chooses to discuss to, to, to discuss these issues. But there is a question that's been raised about how how a culture like that so overtly abusive at the very very highest levels can can exist without the knowledge or any knowledge of any kind of the person running the company. Um, to to the, the, the statement you quoted at the start, Jim uh, Batch, mm. uh, Guillermo said, this is unacceptable as toxic behaviors are in direct contrast to values on which I have never compromised and never will. But, you know, you, you kind of have to suggest that maybe the fact that, you know, six or seven of his most senior employees and um, it's a company of 15,000 people, but there are not 10,000 executives. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like these are people that work directly with him on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis, basis to leave the company under these sorts of circumstances and leave with these allegations being thrown at them how can he possibly say that these are in direct contrast to the values he has because if he had those values would those things be happening at his company? Well what it suggests to me is that having those values involves doing an awful lot more than evidently was being done here and if you, don't, if you aren't doing that work do you actually have those values? That's i mean i guess that speaks a little bit to what you were saying about training hayden like Mm that that actually being there and being an ally and and supporting people isn't just about like going about your business until something screams in your face like if you have those values you have to work for it and, I, and yeah, it, it he's in a weird position because we have seen CEOs step down for far, under far less controversial circumstances yeah. than this. I mean, this, this story is on the front page of the Guardian website. It's on the front page of the New York Times website. It's on the front pages of physical newspapers in France. Like, I, mm. You have to think really hard to remember a time when a single company was under this much scrutiny for a poisonous culture. And, you know, Eve Guillemot is effectively distancing himself from it, like, you know, these aren't my values, so obviously I've I've got a problem with them. But then to what degree is someone in Guillemot's position responsible for this? It's a question I've been asking a lot, and certainly on Twitter I've seen a lot of suggestions that how can someone who's been CEO of this company for 30 years claim that the way the company you know, is run, its culture, is not on his shoulders fundamentally.
2: Yeah. I refuse to believe that he, he didn't know about it. And if he didn't, if he genuinely didn't know, like, I, I believe that was willful ignorance on his part. Like it's, it's kind of goes back to what I was saying before about like making excuses for people. And it is very, very, very easy to make excuses for people because you want to give them the benefit of the doubt. So even, even if he's hearing like stories of bad behavior, perhaps if he hasn't seen it firsthand, then he's able to justify it away in in one form or another. But he, he must have been aware in some capacity. And like you say, if he did genuinely hold these values that he espouses, it's very vaguely defined values, I would add. Um, then how is it that's not been in, you know, company culture often comes from like the top down. Like you see it with overwork, for example, where, management overworks and crunches and that creates an environment where people below them overwork and crunch so it stands to reason that other sort of similar cultural ideas within the company can permeate from the top down so this idea that that he doesn't have these values it, it, it just strikes me as like well how how did it happen then like you know you, you can't be 100% responsible for the actions of 15,000 people but you are in charge so how did that happen like yeah the 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 multiple ways you must have failed to install proper systems and processes and hire the right people and you know like i say instigate training on a certain topic like that's kind of your duty of care, I guess, as the CEO is to ensure that the company operates as it should. And so the fact that there's widespread systemic abuse of both like the highest sort of order with some of the things that these people have been accused of, I don't I don't see how he's kind of not responsible for the, the broader culture there. And obviously, the people who did the things, they are responsible for their own individual actions, but they were... <clears throat> It, it's kind of like the it's like the Overton window in like political theory, right? You know, as discourse moves in one direction, so becomes the the window for what is considered normal. And so, if you have an environment where you have very very extreme behavior, the Overton window of that environment moves to where less extreme but still extreme behavior is just kind of given a free pass because that's the standard, that's the culture, that's the environment. And if as the CEO, you're not noticing that, then you're to what's happening in your company, and you should have probably done something about it much, much sooner.
1: Yeah, that's the thing. Like, because uh, Batch and I were chatting this morning uh, uh, on this subject. But to be clear, like, I'm, like, I, I don't need to like call for the head of Eve Guillemot here, and I'm not calling the head of Eve Guillemot. Like, I'm basically just saying that if you put this in the context of why CEOs step down when they haven't been doing their jobs properly, mm. this is this is not among the milder reasons for doing. That. Right. And even if it, and this is the thing. So if I knew about it and didn't act properly on, on any level. Right. So he just got wind of it or he was hearing this stuff about search, or whatever it was, didn't act in it. That's obviously a failure of leadership but if he didn't know about it at all you could also argue that's a pretty bad way to <laughs> because you really should know about this stuff you know what I mean like if you're an effective leader of a company um, and I, I I recall for some reason this, this this popped into my head this morning but I recall uh, John Riccatello stepping down as CEO of EA and he stepped down as CEO of EA just because a few games hadn't done that well at market <laughs> and like the fact that these games weren't 10 out of 10 is not directly on his shoulders but that it's on the shoulders of the team, teams that he runs and ultimately it was his strategy to make these eight games and so when they when they fail and EA does really badly he's like okay I've got to go and that's not nearly on this level right so no that's true
2: but how badly did that affect EA's share price versus Ubisoft share price really well, no, it's yes,
1: quite badly yeah. and that's the reason why yeah like that's it was very it, like, apologetic it.
0: yeah it's also like when ricoello had less of a st- less of a personal stake in EA, like it, it's kind of keen to remember that um Gilmo is it Ubisoft is a family business the Guillermo started um, Ubisoft themselves like Eve's been there for since the beginning my understanding is like um it's so it's it's harder it's harder to walk away from something that you and your family have spent your entire lives building than a company where you have gone to work for however many years like there's just there's a distance there between Riccatello and and EA that there isn't between Guillermo and Ubisoft that doesn't make it any less worth questioning whether or not Eve should step down um I, I I kind of feel like, uh, Guillermo in particular as well, kind of going back to Hayden's point again of, of giving people the benefit of the doubt, like, Eve is a very personable person. He's a very kind of, compared to other CEOs, compared to other um, execs, he is a very personable person. He's, his presentation of who, of who he is, like on stage and in videos and so forth, he's always someone that is approachable, accessible. Like, I've interviewed him a couple of times. He's, he's genuinely quite an, an, an engaging bloke. But... And we, as Matt was saying this morning when we were chatting, um, we've obviously all rallied behind Eve, um, you know, fighting off the the potential takeover from Vivendi. Like, and you know, Ubisoft was almost this this underdog in that that narrative of like, you know, and here's here's this CEO of a family-run games company and fending off this horrible evil conglomerate. And you know, just a few years later, here we are in this position where he's 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 not in the middle of this, but certainly connected to it and you don't you don't know how to think you like i i have to confess either i can be I can be quite naive and I do like to believe the best in people but as you say there is no good way for him to come out of this either he's been completely ignorant of what's been happening at his company which is bad or he's aware of it right. and has just done nothing about it which is even worse there is no good way for him to come out of this well I
1: think what Sagan was saying about shareholder pressure is is absolutely the right way to think about it because I know we can say family run well it's not it's publicly traded you know it's not family run yes, it's publicly yeah. traded that's why there could have <laughs> been a hostile takeover um, but, but, but it's it's true that the Guillermo family is a very significant stakeholder still in the company, and also would. I think that's the question, right? Will the shareholders apply any pressure on Eve's position on Eve Guillemot's position as a result of a story like this? Uh, does, does that? Does this stuff matter enough to shareholders? And, and obviously, their main concern would be the company's share price and. Unfortunately, if Assassin's Creed Valhalla comes out and shifts 15 million copies, I don't see the share price going down as a result of this. It would take a very moral standpoint from from, uh, a group of people who aren't always that engaged with the morality of of the companies that, that they invest in to, to put pressure on this. Because, I, I mean, I, it, this is the thing. It's not that I'm calling for anyone's head or saying anyone should necessarily step down. I'm just saying that many, many CEOs in similar positions have definitely stepped down in the past and, and in lesser positions. But it is difficult to see where the pressure is going to come that would force
2: that decision. It's worth noting that Ubisoft's share price is down nearly 9% since Friday so that's a fairly sizable drop but if you also look at like the last six months like it's it took a bit of a, took a bit of a hit around march but it was above kind of where it was in its pre-march thing so it had just had a, a fairly big spike so you could also potentially argue that as it's more kind of settling a little bit um but of all the people to kind of hold Ubisoft account for its moral stance in anything, the last absolute last group of people on Earth I would expect that to be is shareholders because they as, and you know, forgive me if I'm generalising, shareholders of giant private companies, but they tend not to care that much about sort of things like this. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. You don't, you don't see Apple shareholders worrying about conflict minerals or anything like that. Do you? No, so why, how did why, the iPhone sell?
2: Yeah, so why would they care about <laughs> systemic abuse? Like if, if they yeah. did, they wouldn't be shareholders. Um, so yeah, it's it's it's. Un, I would say it's unlikely that the shareholder pressure would be enough to force eaves to step down but i don't know s- stranger things have happened i guess
0: yeah. i was gonna it's so uh, the risk of segwaying because uh we, we're kind of running out of time we still have a full episode <laughs> to run after <laughs> this um like uh, people who also don't seem to care about this sort of thing are gamers and consumers who obviously don't follow the news entirely um, but Ubisoft uh, this weekend, in addition to the news of, of exec stepping down, ran their Ubisoft Forward um, conference, or their, their showcase, essentially the, the replacement for their E3 showcase. They put out a, a Twitter statement um, shortly before it went out. Uh, Ubisoft Forward comes during a time of big internal change because all the content has been pre-recorded. We wanted to recognize that the issues we're currently dealing with won't be addressed directly in the show. We still have significant work to do and are committed to this process. We'll provide more updates soon. Now, Matt, as you quite rightly pointed out, The amount of people that have replied like, oh, you know, well, you can easily, there's this magical thing called video editing where you can record something and insert it into a pre-recorded video at a time of your choosing. Like the sarcasm on Twitter has been superb. But equally, for for every one of those, I've seen other people like, oh, thank goodness, I thought the event was going to be delayed. Oh, please don't delay, I didn't delay the event. Don't delay any more games. I need to see you know Far Cry Six. So shareholders don't care. Their audience don't care. It is is primarily an industry concern at this stage, I guess.
1: Yeah, I've seen I've seen a lot of objections to that as a reason why. I think yeah, So this is is difficult, isn't it? Because I. Ubisoft genuinely doesn't believe it was impossible to write a message. It just didn't mean to do one. That seems to be quite clear. I saw a tweet from a guy called Sean Alexander Allen, who um, uh, made a game I think called like Treachery in Beatdown City. Uh, we, we ran into with him just recently anyway. And he said, I've, finished, I've worked on finished game videos that had to be completely redone because of song licensing issues and a need for new footage, which delayed a one-minute video by a month. You all can tack on a short video addressing things if you really wanted to address what's actually going on. I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? Like, Mm -hmm. it would be easy. Yeah it's got zero to do with it being pre-recorded and the pre-recorded thing just opens up the question of why not just push it back a week why why even do it this weekend at yeah. if if you genuinely are in a position of wanting it, it's yeah it, I, it's um it's an unfortunate speaks to the whole shareholder thing again um you just <laughs> delaying something like this i think that that stock price would be that would probably hit the stock price even harder than than the allegations maybe it'd be down 15% Rather than just nine, um, all kinds of factors why Ubisoft wouldn't wanna wouldn't wanna delay this and wouldn't wanna factor in news that's probably the ma- the majority of its target audience for a consumer facing conference are completely oblivious to as well. Like it would just be drawing attention the attention of gamers towards something that they might have might not be aware of anyway.
0: Yeah, we we were saying that earlier the only thing that they would accomplish by addressing it in the video is. Telling more gamers that they're in trouble over (laughs) allegations of abuse, they're like there was nothing that they could say in in, even if they had put something in the video, there was nothing they could have said that would have addressed these concerns or calmed the the anger over them. Um, any more than any of the other statements they've put out, there is literally nothing they could have said in Ubisoft Forward that would have would have improved things. So yeah, delaying would have made sense. Particularly given that, so um, Rebecca and I sat up last night, we were watching, uh, I said sat up last night, it was, it was later UK time than it was US, but we watched through um, Ubisoft Forward together. And honestly, they could definitely have saved it because they keep on, they kept on hinting that there's another Ubisoft Forward coming. There was no new announcements Nothing really significant, particularly now that Far Cry 6 had been leaked. Like, it could have easily waited another month or so. There's, there was nothing there last night that needed to be out. Although, I grant you, I don't know what shareholders are expecting and looking for, obviously. Yeah, so what,
1: what other thing that. That you saw but, but what you did see online was that uh, people in the press were not willing to kind of let this one slide I, sh- I shared a few tweets from journalists called Laura Kate Dale who used to work for a, a Kotaku and Destructor and various things Who was sort of live tweeting along with the conference and you know just to give an example tweet it's uh, time for Ubisoft a company that is just pretending tonight that the abuse accusations against their staff don't exist to show off Assassin's Creed Valhalla you're an <laughs> or <Norwegian laughs> heading to England <laughs> and I just open beta starts today you know if you want to play this battle royale that definitely didn't get announced when it did in order to move the news cycle forward <laughs> and it was just like <laughs> every single thing stated as if it was just a regular live stream participant so now time for ubisoft brackets, the company that is going to be these things and <laughs> was doing that so i thought that was uh, you know amusing and a very, about a very dark dark subject obviously but it was kind of nice to see that people weren't letting it
2: you know, be a, be a silencing. That, that attempt to move the news cycle forward that that Laura mentioned, I think is spot on because sort of doing, doing the news rounds this morning, like the amount in which uh, Far Cry 6 and uh, Assassin's Creed Valhalla dominates just every website out there at the moment is staggering um, to the point where like there was, a lot of the stuff that happened over the weekend appeared to just be buried beneath waves of people being very happy that someone from breaking bad is in far cry and Vikings. Mm. Um, So I, I I would, I would imagine that was quite a deliberate move. Like it's classic PR spin, isn't it to deflect and try and move the news cycle forward because you know, the, the internet pub uh, sort of populace, you know, myself included, we've got terrible attention spans. We just get distracted and move on to the next outrage or shiny thing immediately. Um, so, yeah, I, it's, uh, I'm just tired, just tired of the whole thing. <laughs>
1: um, there's a developer called uh, Katie Coronis who um, works for Riot Games and made the game Elsinore. Um, and she's made a point. It's like, She said that, uh, specifically addressed to the Ubisoft uh, developers, everything revealed today looks awesome. I'm excited. Uh, And I know this must be a weird, dual, pride, shame-feeling experience for you, but be kind to yourselves. You are not your leadership. You still have the right to be proud of your work. Um, So there there is that aspect to it. Um, I really feel like... It's weird because we we recently read a piece on uh, mocap, like how to set up like a mocap system as a small developer, what you need, how to do it on a budget. It's supposed to be instructional. And we had some input from Ubisoft on it. And the piece was scheduled to go up on like, you know, the the very same week that the allegations started to emerge from Ubisoft, Sophia, and then Toronto as well. And we delayed that piece. Because we're like, we can't, you know, we, we didn't want to have, you know, in the top of the website, Ubisoft accused of all these things and Ubisoft tells you how to do mocap at home. But that's kind mm-hmm. of the, that's the that's the contradiction that's on every single website around at the moment. Like, like it's on the one hand, you've got this, on the other hand, oh, look, Vikings, you know, it's just, <laughs> it's really difficult to know what to do there because it is the, the product of many people's hard work. But at the same time, it feels completely inappropriate to me to have those two stories
0: on a website at the same time as hayden says like all the games websites they're all running their hands-on previews with um, assassin's creed and, and watchdogs like i mean you know, like, that's traffic that the game sites need in order you know because it, it's a hit it's what um, it's what came out it's what the news is what gamers are talking about so they need to kind of get their impressions across but equally how do you address the broader, the broader story behind an article that's focused on a specific product?
1: Well, I mean, if we think about it like this, right, so I think when the coronavirus pandemic was declared, didn't like Capcom pull Resident Evil 3's advertising? So it was like it's probably not appropriate yeah. for a game that has a virus in it. To be advertised at a time when a virus is causing so many problems, you see the same with school shootings. Like companies pull, pull game game launches and and marketing exercises because
3: it's inappropriate. Um, but he, I, I think we just have
1: to speak to what what hayden was saying about moving the news cycle forward right like here is a company that has even more reason than either of those examples to make sure this doesn't happen today uh, or sorry yesterday and it chose not to and it is really hard to not see that, that, that it, there's a kind of there's a benefit to letting it go ahead because it it moves content through websites much more quickly and it puts websites in a position where, you know, I, as you say, James, like these these announcements are not small. This material is not small. It is valuable to websites who rely on this kind of stuff for keep themselves uh, afloat, to make money, to pay the bills. And I, I, you know, we're in a different position. Like we had to delay one article about MoCap for a couple of weeks. To feel like in a better position to publish it, but I don't think that you know many of our sister partner sites within our within our network. I don't think they're in a position to not write about Assassin's Creed Valhalla because of this. You know, it's um, it is difficult not to see that that Ubisoft did some fairly uh, depressing sums on the back of a bar mat and came up with the idea that maybe mm. we can just run it and not bother even mentioning. the thing. <laughs> Happy times in the games industry
0: continue. <laughs> Well, speaking of happy times, I think it's time to move on to the rest of the uh, conversation. So Rebecca and the team recorded the full episode back on Friday. We're now going to transition into that, where they take a a broader look at the abuse allegations across the industry and how you can improve a company's culture.
4: Hi, you're listening to the GamesIndustry.biz podcast. I'm Rebecca Valentine. I'm joined today by...
3: Uh, Matt Handrahan. Marie D'Alessandri. And Mike Williams.
4: Uh, just a quick note, we are recording this podcast on the Friday before Ubisoft's weekend, uh, Ubisoft Forward event. So even if our usual podcast host, James Batchelor, somehow gets his wish and they show Beyond Good and Evil 2 this weekend, which they won't, uh, <laughs> you won't be hearing about it or anything else announced here. Uh, or You won't be hearing about that or anything else announced. Uh, here on this podcast, so sorry about that. But I think that's mostly okay uh, because we have a much more serious topic to address this week. Uh, This week, we had a really fantastic column on our site from uh, narrative designer Kim Belair entitled, We Need a Movement to Tackle Systemic Abuse, Not a Moment. Uh, I really encourage anyone listening to go read it if you haven't yet. It discusses the fact that uh, the kinds of Me Too movements, such as the one our industry had a few weeks ago and the one it had late last year, are... Uh, moments. Um, There might be some short-term changes made at the time, Um, you know, ties broken or people let go from positions who had been abusing those positions to abuse others for years. But once that's done, there's this tendency for things to quiet down. And, you know, maybe those who were dismissed can potentially, you know, work their way back into the industry in some capacity to continue their bad behaviors again, or maybe others who were never outed or never suffered consequences, just continue their behavior. And many people who, Ha- either had stories or have continuing stories, you know, sort of get silenced because everybody is just ready to move on. Um, so we we wanted to talk this week about what the industry actually can do to shape long term solutions and permanent culture change. And Marie, I know
5: you said before the podcast that you had some specific thoughts. So if it's okay, I'd like to let you start. Sure, of course um, Alright, so difficult to know where to start There's a lot to say I think I'm going to try not to get angry But I apologise in advance if I do swear um, <laughs> I, think, uh, <laughs> I think I think you're yeah.
1: allowed to get angry yeah, Just, just swear, swear. Yeah, swear yeah. Yeah. to your heart's content on this one I think.
5: <laughs> um, So I think one one of the first thing. um Sorry Let me start again. I think one of the first things that's lacking in the industry at the the moment is a safe space for women Um, that's been lacking for a long time. And it it just makes me angry that these Me Too moments just keep happening, but nothing changes. And when, when the first Me Too moment happened last year, I was very hopeful and probably a bit naive as well in thinking like, right, it's happening. People can't look away now but then nothing happened and like abusers kept coming back on twitter like nothing happened and that's extremely frustrating but there are a number of things the industry can do to stop this circle of abuse and systemic um abuse i said abuse twice but i think that's okay uh, <laughs> and i really wish um hayden was actually we're actually on this podcast because i know they would have a lot to say about this uh because i think unionization is one of the key thing that the industry should be embracing to tackle sy- uh, systemic abuse and systemic racism as well um because through unions you can challenge how things are done at a management, senior management level. That's why unions are here. That's what they're for. So I really wish more people in the industry would take that route because um, I think a lot of good could come with it. Um, that could lead to codes of conduct being uh, adopted, for instance, as well, which is really something that companies should be doing. Um, yeah, that's the first thing that came to my mind when we start, di- started discussing the idea of doing this podcast around... around how to have the industry do better? I think unions are a fantastic tools. Fantastic tools, sorry, to do better.
1: May I, ask, I might uh, interject with a question here, though, Marie. So we've reported on all of the. I mean, we've reported on the general kind of moment. Let's call it a moment because that's the discussion we're having. But we kind of. Go a bit deeper and single out when big companies are involved. Uh, Ubisoft is one of them, for example. This time, now Ubisoft has made some statements which kind of point to this idea of we're going to overhaul our culture. We're going to make this kind of deeper change. Well, you're talking here about like you, you feel like the unions are going to be a necessary part of that process. What do you make of? What do you make of, a, of of the kind of statements that Ubisoft is putting out there, and not just Ubisoft? There are other companies involved in these too. I'm, I'm using Ubisoft because Ubisoft has been a, a bit of a focus for a lot of these allegations here. And obviously, they're they're talking the talk. And I think one of the one of the things that Kim Belair was pointing out was, and in fact, Kim Belair used to work for Ubisoft and and kind of was aware of some of the people that have been uh, been the the subject of these allegations going uh, ahead of it. Uh, was that these kinds of statements don't actually add up. Up to a whole hell of a lot. So, what, what do you kind of make of what you're seeing coming from the companies that are being accused of having? These I
5: think cultures? the problem is like, I, I don't like. It's funny. I had this conversation this morning with a, in, when I was doing an interview about race. So something different, but same same kind of issues. Is like the problem in the games industry is that studio cultures are predominantly made by white men anyway. So, like to change this mm-hmm. culture would mean that maybe it would be great if Ubisoft wasn't led by only white men. I mean, I don't pretend to know exactly what the senior management at Ubisoft looks like, but I can take a wild guess and assume that maybe there is a lot of white men there. So I don't know how they're going to address Their culture, but I don't see that happening if they don't address the fact that they don't probably don't have a lot of women and people of color in their senior management. So all the like you said, they they talk the talk, but I just want to see them walk the walk now. Like it's just it's just words. You need to actually rethink your processes. Mm -hmm. Like HR, for instance, is something that games companies really need to rethink because HR is supposedly serving the interest of Um, of the workers but actually is mostly serving the interests of the company which is why there are so many um, complaints of abuse that just stop at HR and actually don't lead anywhere because HR doesn't necessarily go the extra mile and do the actual normal thing which would be to punish the person who who abused someone else Um, so yeah I think Mm -hmm. HR rethinking their processes would be a good thing um, there's, there's a lot of training available to do that. Like, there's there's actual trainings for how to tackle important discussions in your company. That is a thing that exists. Like, there's a lot of training companies out there that offer that type of services. So I think just games companies should should seek these, should look for them, and actually do practical things that could help them tackle those important issues. Don't know if I'm making sense right yeah, now. Yeah, you but... are. Um... <laughs> okay, great. Uh- Thank you. I would I would add to that actually.
4: Actually, I was thinking. I was thinking about what you were saying, and I remembered I, I did an interview with uh, Christina Seely way, way back. This is like in June 2019, um, and we were we were specifically talking about how to get more women into the industry. Um, but she brought up this really like good point. She's she's the CEO of Modus Games um, and uh, Maximum Games, and. She, we were talking kind of after our initial conversation about the company, about how we're, we're getting better at bringing more women and, and uh, people of color into the industry in general, but there are very, still very, very few in C-level positions and high-level positions to be making these kinds of decisions, um, like the, these kinds of top-level company culture decisions to be like kind of leading the way on those things. I mean, they definitely exist. I'm not trying to erase the people who are there, um, but the, there are still comparatively few. And she... Her suggestion was, um, she said, it's really important for us to go out into the entry level and middle management, and both women and men need to sponsor, not mentor, women in these different roles. Uh, Women especially have always been told that they need someone to mentor them. Mentoring is a good process, but that's like telling you, I'm going to help you, be there for you, talk to to you, and coach you, but it's still on you. What we need is someone to sponsor. We need men and women in executive level positions to identify talent and middle management and get those girls to head into positions where they have profit and loss responsibilities, for example. Women tend to move Towards roles in marketing or HR where someone else owns the P and L. You wanna be C level, you need to own the P and L. That's what she said. And I I think that's I think that's really good because, you know, we we have those studies about how, you know, like women tend to not apply for jobs. They don't think they're 1000% qualified for. Um, and I think that when you have more diverse individuals at the top level, making company culture decisions and making executive decisions and owning these kinds of things, I, that doesn't like magically solve the problem. Right. But it does sort of help direct, it cha- change, the, adjust the direction of a company so that people feel, people feel more comfortable, um, I guess coming forward with things like that and people who are abusers maybe feel less comfortable. I don't know. Propagating that kind of culture. I agree. If that makes any sense.
3: No, no, it does. And that's,
4: that's that's recognizing that women can be abusers too. That doesn't, that's not a magical solution, but it is, I, it's one possible thing that could help.
3: Yeah. Uh, I was going to say, as as a general aspect, I I think uh, the feeling that I've also gotten from some of these people that have been around who were outed after years and years of behavior is companies are also a little bit too precious about high-level developers. Uh, There's sort of the feeling like, well, they did... Uh, one or two or three good games for us. We can't get rid of them, cause then we'd lose their specific uh, animus uh, at our company, which sort of misses the point that generally uh, systemic abuse uh, across a different, a bunch of different lines—not just sexual, but you know, emotional and and uh, different aspects. You, ends up having a brain drain at the company. So, you, you end up from that one person that you're trying to keep losing maybe three or four or five or more uh, developers who could have gone on to bigger and better things, who could have made lasting change, who could have made unique titles, popular titles for your studio, and you're losing them uh, to these other people that you've decided are the ones that you need to keep around in order to be successful.
1: Yeah, this is something actually that Kim Belair said in her piece. It's quite a, uh, a telling section where she said that you know pe- people in the industry. If you think about it, you'll notice that the kind of the the, the group of men that you're around will will often stay the same, but the mm. women will change quite a regular basis. Which I think speaks to what Mike is saying about how by focusing on a small group of people that are perceived as talented or too talented to risk losing, you end up losing so many people around them that that, that are kind of subject to to the way they act. is something also that came up in a column he wrote for us a couple of weeks ago a week before last um, when when the the wave of allegations was was first starting. Uh, I'll quote a little bit from it here because I think it gets to the idea that Mike was talking about. Um, This is an industry that regularly provides men well known to be temperamental bullying or vindictive with significant power over the careers and lives of more junior staff and compounds this error by enforcing little or no oversight instances of terrible behavior by staff whose creative or technical skills are deemed irreplaceable are carefully and studiously overlooked even though irreplaceable in this industry as in many others is more often a signifier of that person's well-cultivated relationships with colleagues rather than any unique genius Um, All too often in all too many companies, studios and offices and other groups and communities around the industry, an abuser saying nobody will believe you even if you complain or you will never work in this industry again if you make a fuss is making a threat that simply can't be laughed off. The day-by-day experience of how bullying, abuse and peer pressure is handled in that environment actually backs up what they're saying. Uh, I think it's quite a depressing... uh, yeah. things to think about you know but it, i i think that that probably that that, that does summarize the, the culture in, in these companies and and i think this is one of the areas where i i think that's i think it's valid i think that that's probably a root of a lot of, of a lot of the issues that we see but it's also uh, an aspect of culture that celebration of like individual talent to the point where people just look the other way like including the highest levels of management in a company how does that change how do how how do you implant accountability there at ubisoft we've seen some very high profile people either be i i'm, I'm actually quite i'm not quite clear on whether they've they've been fired completely or different placed on, on the leave or whatever the the terminology is yeah different depending on the person but I think you can see at Ubisoft. You can go out and find out the names for yourself, but you can see that the, 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 what Rob's describing definitely was at play at least there. You would have to assume is at play in many companies, yeah, of companies it's, across it's the industry.
3: Like I, 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 can sort of business fears risk and and betting on the the horse that won you the race the last time uh, makes sense on that side, but there's always, I guess, a feeling that they're not thinking of potential of what could come from certain levels. And especially in the case of Ubisoft, some of the people named and mentioned were sort of moved to different uh, parts of the company, sort of out of view, which sort of seems at odds with the idea of, of, keeping them working on high profile projects and it was kind of like well if you if you know that there's a problem enough that you need to move them to sort of a behind the scenes part of the company maybe that's something that you should really think about like why are we doing this just you can get rid of that person and trust me you will find another person in this industry you will find another person within your company that can do the same job, potentially better, you don't even know because you're not giving them the chance, or you're keeping that person around, and they're leaving your company completely. I
4: mean, I agree with that, Mike, but I do think there's like, you know, kind of the additional problem, right, where you get, especially in these companies that have been around just like forever, right, you get these kind of systems of people who are buddy-buddy with each other. So if you have an abuser, you know, in the company, you know, they're they're friends with all these other kind of top-level people, and they're all really tight and they all hang out together, they all drink together, and so, yeah, maybe maybe these other people aren't explicitly in-of-themselves abusers, but they are certainly enabling this other person, like, they're all aware of this person's behavior, and when it's finally outed they get they don't get let go they get moved elsewhere in the company or maybe they they just get kind of a muted role for a few years but they're still there at the company because all their friends are enabling them right like they're still they're still like you know kind of and they're still in power right like if this person even if this person doesn't have the title or the the actual like like name on the list to like back it up they're still there and there's still sort of the implication that oh if this guy doesn't like you if you piss this guy off if you don't do what this guy wants then you know he's got all these friends and you're gonna be in trouble i mean i've I've, I've reported on stuff um, where there there are people who got ousted for the, for, from their positions, and I still hear all the time that they're you know still just kind of around, kind of influencing things, but there, there's nothing provable, so like you can't like do anything about it, right? But it's and, and and I don't that's so hard that requires like that that requires a very conscious like being very aware of what all of your. I guess, it, one, it requires people at the top level who care, right? To, it requires people somewhere who care enough to actually dig in and route out these kinds of behaviors, but then also to be super proactive about, lift, about lifting people up who are not in those circles, who are, like you said, you know, kind of this brand new talent, um, you know, actively seeking it out, actively seeking to elevate it, um, and making sure that you know the top levels of your development teams and, and your company are populated by all different kinds of people with all different kinds of ideas from all different kinds of backgrounds who aren't just going to close ranks on abusers.
1: Um, this actually reminds me a little bit of Marie's uh, great work around unconscious bias for for the Games Industry.biz Academy, which is the section of our site, where, which is kind of designed to give people uh, guides or advice uh, on, on difficult areas of their jobs. And um, Marie's written really well about some of this stuff. And what I've learned from reading what Marie's been doing is that, you know, doing that, like uplifting people that, that typically would be pushed into the background by these kind of domineering characters. Seem to be like really the root of, of a lot of these problems involves such a very fundamental overhaul of the way you do everything from the way you conduct meetings or have you know team calls and the the, the those kind of biases are so deep seated that companies really are going to have to commit to this if it is going to be more than a moment because it involves understanding that most of the systems you have in place are probably, on some level, uh, contributing in some small way to a, to an overall culture. It's not. It's not as simple as just when when an incident of this ha- like this happens, you discipline the person involved. Because I think. We're, probably, we're not already seeing a great deal of change as a result of that. It's actually just about making a more egalitarian environment overall. And, and from there, a better culture can can rise up.
5: Yeah, absolutely. I think like there's a lot of, of things that people don't realise in their daily work life as an impact on that lad culture culture of the games industry and that they should be checking those things like microaggressions biases and stuff like that like there are ways to be better at this and maybe it will nest like that will mean investing a bit of money to get better but i think that is money that is well invested um if you if you can check your processes and and do better but um yeah talking about loud culture that just remind me of rebecca just uh, mentioned touched upon this already but there is this issue as well with alcohol which i think that you wanted to talk about as well which really doesn't help (laughs) really doesn't help that everything in this industry revolves around drinking and like it's really weird because when i first joined the industry obviously before i moved to the uk to work in the games industry um before I moved to the UK, I did not work in the games industry, and I arrived here. And for a while, I thought this weird relationship with alcohol was a UK thing. Which it is a bit. Let's be fair here, but it's just every culture. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but every culture. <laughs>
1: yeah, there's <laughs> definitely <somewhere. laughs>
5: in there. Uh, but yeah. every culture has a different approach to alcohol, right? I'm not, I'm not judging. But then I realised that it wasn't necessarily the UK. It is the games industry, and. We just need to stop having events. Events revolve around alcohol because, uh, as a woman, and I'm no, I'm not the same. I'm not the only one. There are women and people from underrepresented genders who just don't feel comfortable in those. uh, Not always feel comfortable in these type of environments when like it's just all laddish and stuff, and it's just like you feel alone and not safe most of the time. I don't know if I'm I'm sure I'm not the only one to feel that way. I know I'm not the only one.
4: (laughs) Oh, you're not. And it's 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 the entire atmosphere, right? And I I I wanna be clear, like people People who are abusers will do abuse with, with or without yeah. alcohol. They will, but alcohol does not help, um, and it often makes things just just so deeply worse. And it, it's the whole atmosphere, right? Like it's the fact that often at these events, um, the only thing you can drink is alcohol or water. Like there is there's just nothing else um, around really anywhere. Um, there's there's pressure to drink from other people because everyone else is. Whether it's implied pressure or whether it's direct, like, hey, what are you doing? Like, why you know why aren't you you know grab another drink or whatever. Um, you know, I've had people just like walk up to me at events and just like, like hand me alcohol. Like, like I didn't ask for it. I, what, why did you give me this? Like, did you want to, did you, where did this come from? Did you check first? Who are you? Um. So like that's happened before. And then they also tend to, you know, happen in very dark, very crowded, very loud rooms. That's, that's uh, what uh, I was so about if, to bring up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so if you're already feeling like, you know, kind of alone or you don't like know where your support networks are, then you're like crowded in. It's, it's very easy for people to, you know, potentially manipulate your drink or, you know, potentially like it, it's. It's just not a great situation. And I I know that it's a little bit playing to my interest because I would love to have more networking events that are cozy little <laughs> tea parties, um, but also just kind of a brighter, more open atmosphere that's like a little bit quieter and a little more chill would honestly be okay sometimes. Yeah. I think it's fine. Yeah,
3: I, I, I was about to say, as a slight divergence from the topic, uh, event planners, uh, publishers, if you guys are doing events, uh, trust me, it'll pay dividends if you are the one uh, event about networking networking that is in a well-lit, decently quiet place with a good amount of food. and
4: Lots of places to sit. Yeah,
3: and lots of places to sit where you can actually talk to other people who are at the same event. So uh, it's just something to keep in mind. <laughs>
4: I would add to that too Mike. I think I think one big kind of problem is that those those events in the dark crowded super alcoholic you know bars and stuff The reason why they tend to be so popular is they tend to be held by the big names, right? Like, you know that the big, the people at the company you want to talk to are going to be there. Um, The important people are going to be there. That's how you network. And that's why people still go to those. So if you are going to put together one of those events that's, you know, kind of quieter and more chill, be proactive and reach out to some people who are, you know, I don't want to say more important because that's not the right word, but like people who are going to have some influence in the industry, people who are, you know, going to be relevant to the, uh, you know, a lot of other people that want to come to these things so that there is sort of that incentive, like, oh, if I go there, you know, I might get to talk to this person who I can network with and have a conversation with. And I I don't want to downplay like other people's roles, but that is like a very real thing in this industry. Like people with influence will go to events with a lot of alcohol and people will feel pressured to go because otherwise they're not going to get to have a conversation with these people.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that I've been involved in... uh, the Well, I've been covering the games industry for quite a long time. And um, at the start of my career, you would go to... I can remember uh, sort of press... This was when my consumer-facing journalism days... you go to... I'd visit a studio and it would be 11 o'clock in the morning and there'd be a bucket of beer on the table inside, you know, an office, like a working space. Um, That... I don't don't know how it is in the consumer side of things I've been told that that part of it's become less booze soaked like during the during the day effectively during your actual working time um that that's become a little bit better but there, there definitely was a time when literally every everywhere you would go would be more or less would at least have a, at least one or two free beers or three glasses of wine available to you the thing that this always struck me particularly about going to say like going to a gdc um where on any given night there might be seven or eight different networking events or or you know companies throwing uh, parties of or well basically they are all parties I guess that's the point right that there are eight different things to go to on any night in GDC and they're all basically the same thing they're all in a bar or a nightclub they're all like open bars or like certainly enough free drink tickets to to get most people drunk and there really isn't any alternative Um, and, and I think that's that's the thing that, that struck me the most when really contemplating this, that, that there's not even... Very often there doesn't even seem to be any attempt to make an alternative even earlier in a day. So, for example, like the GDC show floor closes at six there should be, if, if you want to do networking, if you want to do mixes, you could very, very easily do a networking event or a mixer that, that was completely dry, no alcohol involved and then you could have a party later but that would just give, that would give people the alternative that would give people a place to be where they could get the access they want and as you say Rebecca, ensure that the people are there that are going to make that worthwhile but without feeling the need to go to this other, to go to this other kind of event, it's always struck me at bigger events that, that you can have 10 different Options and absolutely every single one of them is is entirely revolves around binge drinking or or drinking culture.
4: I do. I don't want to linger too much just on the alcohol thing. I think it's like super important, but I do also think that it's it's just one aspect of this kind of multifaceted problem. And I think I think we've done we've kind of canvassed so far the fact that they're really. I mean, it's it's one big like systemic problem, but it does kind of have two fronts, right? Like one of them is these live events that we all go to and. you know, the, a lot a lot of these abuse stories that we saw seem to have happened at events, you know, at bars, at, you know, these different things. But also a lot of them are within companies. And it seems like some of these solutions, you know, would potentially work for both. Um, and some of them, you know, kind of only work for one or the other. But I don't know. I think ultimately, it, like, it, it absolutely requires people to not just sort of sit there and say like, okay, I, I care about this, you know, this is important. I don't want, you know, I I don't want an abusive industry. I want a better industry. You know, if, if, if I am a person who has never been impacted by this, but I still want to help, you know, say, yeah, sure. Come to me. If you ever have a problem, I'll help. Like, I don't, I don't think that's good enough, right? Like, I, I, when this was all going on that last week, like I, I was tweeting about it because I do, and um, I had, I had like a lot of you know, guys who are friends in the industry kind of be like, oh yeah, just let me know if anyone messes you, and I'll come mess them up. Like, no, that's not what I need. That's not what I need. And I think, I think one of the things that is something that everybody who cares about this, no matter where you are or what position you have in the industry, kind of needs to take to heart is like this. This problem requires like really proactive listening. Listening. like it's not it's not just sort of sitting there and saying yeah sure I'll help if I see something right like it's, it's actively like engaging with the people who are coming forward with these stories and like like figuring out you know because people are people are saying people are actively saying the things that they need you know they they need these these safer spaces they need these people to be routed out of you know these positions of power like they need all these specific things like you can't just sort of sit there and passively say you'll help if you see something right like you need to v- very actively be looking out for this kind of stuff and very very actively be opening your mouth and addressing it um, when you see it and hear it.
3: Uh, and and uh, the, the thing that struck me was a good 70% just to throw out a number of these were like open secrets. Mm. Uh, like I find myself not necessarily connected to as many people in the industry uh, in sort of this personal level but when some of the names started coming out like I'd be in a, a slack or a discord and someone would go oh yeah that person and I'd just be like wait what this was just this was just a thing people knew and yeah that seems to be the case that a lot of these were like oh yeah no it was definitely that person like I was wondering when that shoe was going to drop and that's just Sad and depressing that it, it has been that way.
1: Well, it's been, it There's definitely always been as long as I've been a journalist there's always been sort of lists of problematic people that get passed around so that's like obviously that would have been the case if it's still a problem It was before but it was not, not not lists that were necessarily ever shared with someone in my position as you know as a, as a white man in a, in a very white male industry but definitely it's always been very clear that that was the one that was the one tool of defence that, that people in that position were using it was really just it was limited to like whisper networks and kind of mutual support among people without any real sense that change could be affected. Um, And what I I do wonder about, because I think what you're saying, Rebecca, is absolutely right. It's going to take going to take root and branch cultural change within companies but it's also going to take the people who work within those companies to be more proactive to be better allies to people in these situations Um, and and one thing that I did think about was um, and I'm not comparing these two in terms of like severity or whatever but crunch is another cultural problem within the industry that has a very real human cost and that's the only degree on which I would make comparison between this, this problem and that problem but with crunch you have seen um, a shift in the way that people who just work for companies are willing to to tolerate it, to put up with it. to that when I, Certainly when I started as a journalist, that is something that people would feel very, very uncomfortable talking about at all, going to a journalist about. You would see very, very few reports of crunch culture anywhere on any website for any reason. They're very, very common now because I think the industry reached a point where a lot of employees just had enough and they were no longer afraid to speak up about it. Um, I think on some level... The the movement that Kim Belair is describing would involve that kind of sea change within the people that work at companies, the, the the being emboldened to actually say something when something happens, and not to be cowed by the the influence of the people doing
4: it. I will say it's that that's a little harder to sort of do the thing that you just said, right? Like like you said, like that. <laughs> If I hear from a per- from a source that there is a really bad crunch at video game studio number one. Um, then I can, I, I can talk to them, I can, you know, sort of reach out to anybody else that I know at that studio and sort of see like how they feel about it. And I can, you know, also sort of cold reach out, like, you know, look on LinkedIn or look on Twitter and, you know, see other people who say that they work there publicly and just sort of just reach out and be like, hey, how are things here? Like, can we talk about it for a story I'm working on? Um, and so it's it's kind of, it's a little bit easier to investigate, right? Um, but these kinds of abuse things are harder to investigate, right? Because, like, it, just because somebody works kind of in the same building as an abuser doesn't mean that they have been impacted by them, right? Like, it's it, it kind of depends on what it is. Like, like with riot, like the big riot game exposé, riot games exposé. Like, clearly there was an overarching culture at the studio that was impacting, gosh, I mean, practically everyone. But um, these are a little bit harder. Like, it's harder to track down people who would be willing to come forward about this. And I, I, I say this not really knowing what. The solution is this The stuff is hard to talk about because you don't know how many other victims there are out there. And it's it's hard to keep yourself, you know, hidden and anonymous. You have to basically be willing to sort of put your name out there on the line. I mean, journalists can do what they can. Right. But if you if you have the perception that you're maybe one of only a couple victims, then why would you come forward? Because then they're going to come after you.
1: Well, sure. Yeah. I wasn't, I wasn't actually talking about oh, what sorry. journalists can do to be honest I was more talking about the people that work within the, because as Mike said and then what you've seen a lot, particularly stories coming out of Ubisoft is people yes. knew this was going on, happening to their colleagues okay. and they weren't That like so, and it was left to the person being abused to have, to come forward and speak up for themselves and people weren't weren't supporting them in the way that I think that kind of needs to happen, that that's a change internally and, and again that's like Like, it's it's easy to say and it's much, much harder to know how a change like that happens, how a cultural change happens, how people feel that they can start doing that more.
5: Um, No, I think I was going to just bang that same drum again about how I think abuse is also a thing where a lot of staff just assume that HR is going to do something about it. And like, so they're not necessarily going to support the victims or like, help them because they're like oh it's fine just just report it to hr and everything will be fine but well guess what everything is not fine at all um so yeah i guess i was just going to say that again because that's something i think is quite important to to change that process at at the hr level as well but i've already said that so mike yeah (laughs) and,
3: and generally i find that that people a lot of these stories are finally coming out uh and the the real sad part is People only feel free to tell their stories when they're completely gone from the industry. Like that's, that's the moment where they're like, well, I'm never going to get a chance. To work on games To make games To cover games Again So I'm going to finally Be able to tell my story Because they know Like implicit Either at that company Or within the industry At large That Bringing that up In many cases Means That They won't get a chance Or they will be seen As difficult Or problematic And The fact that That is That is a a thing is is also sort of a, I guess, an open secret. Like, we think it's sad, but we also probably acknowledge that it's true. Mm. Which... uh, I don't know what to do about that.
1: Yeah, well, I think one of the issues is with something like this that it is very hard to know. It feels like the real change would require a lot of different things to all be changing at the same time to produce like a substantive result that you can really look at and see is different. Um, But it's difficult at this point in time to to feel like anything is going to change when it hasn't changed in the past. And it remains to be seen whether the words and statements issued by the companies involved by the people that have worked around the people that have been accused of this stuff is actually actually going to amount to anything
3: in the long term. But and, and remember companies if you address a lot of these problems and you become the studio that is a good place for people to come and feel safe you will get better work, more creative work out of it and probably more success. So uh, There's money to be made in doing the right thing.
4: I'll add, too, like, if you're listening to this and you're not somebody with, like, you know, a position of, of power or influence who is able to make, like, sweeping changes as an organization or whatever, you're all, you're still able to create safe spaces for those around you. Like, you're able to, in whatever community you are, whether you're, like, whether you're a, an artist or a designer or a content creator or, like, like what whatever it is that you do, you can create little communities, you can create Discord communities, you can create. The okay groups of friends you can create um, Twitter groups and and I mean I'm talking about social media because that's where we are right now but you can you know put together panels at events you can I mean there's all there's all the different vehicles in this industry for creating small spaces and you if, if this is something that you're passionate about and something you believe in you can be proactive to make sure that that particular space is safe right like you can just absolutely have a hard line against anybody behaving in a bad way you can be proactive about trying to make sure That the voices you invite into your space are diverse um, and come from just all different kinds kinds of backgrounds, and you can you can bring those people in and you can introduce them to one another and you know help people make good, safe connections and feel good and safe to talk about the things that bother them and the things that worry them, so that if something happens, you know elsewhere, they feel that they can come to your space and and be safe and talk about it and have a support network, Um, and that's that's something that you can do, and that's something that I've seen a lot lot of people doing just lately is making little, it could be because we're all quarantined right now, but making a lot of these communities and hopefully being proactive about making sure that they are places where people feel comfortable. I think I actually want to let, um, I think I want to let Kim Belair actually in this. And I, I, I do encourage you to go, go read her article again. The answer I give myself is that I can help. I can say that if you need me, I am here. Through what means I have available, I will keep trying to bring new voices into safer spaces and advocate for change and upheaval and dangerous ones. And I will work to protect and uplift those I can. I invite any who need it to reach out to me through whatever means you prefer, even if all you need is a listening ear or someone to advocate for you in a room where you feel alone. This does not tire me nor cost any energy. And as a black woman, it is valuable to me. And it, it is as valuable to me as it is to those around me. I want to do this, and I'm finally grateful in a position where I can move with some safety and agency. Um... I thought that was good because it was more suggestions of ways individuals might be able to help. So uh, you can always go back and listen to previous episodes of this podcast on all good podcasting platforms. And once you're on that good podcasting platform, consider subscribing so it'll let you know whenever another episode appears. And you can and should get your daily dose of news and insight into the world behind games at gamesindustry.biz.